now, everyone's favorite autodidactic iconoclast, Drew Marshall. Bum, 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 I ran. All right, you know what that means, folks. It's time for a regular segment on our show. We call the terrorism update with the most inappropriate song uh, possible. But that's because we uh, we have a great time chatting with our regular guest, Mubin Sheikh, who will join us as well. Uh, he is an ex-Muslim extremist turned undercover intelligence operative, and he's the author of Undercover Jihadi. Mubin Sheikh on the phone, as well as David Gartenstein-Ross, who is a counterterrorism scholar and analyst and is the author of Bin Laden's Legacy, Why We're Still Losing the War on Terror. And both of them join us on the phone right now. Mubin, how are you doing, man? Hey, how are you? I'm well. And uh, David, can you hear Mubin okay? I, I sure can. It's uh, great to, to join you, and it's great to be on with my friend Mubin. He is a pretty good guy, eh? But do you do you know, like, he's um, <laughs> he's a funny guy. Did you see? Have you ever seen that side of him, David? Or is he always serious when he's with you? <laughs> oh, of course. No, I've, I've known Mubin for a few years. I actually um, uh, first first met him uh, in Toronto when I was up visiting uh, Drew, a mutual friend of ours. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've uh, been able to see the the funny um, and uh, somewhat crazy side of Mubin as well. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Oh, man, that is just uh, ridiculous that you guys actually know each other. Now, would you say that um, you would be on the same side of the coin? And and let me, uh, David, I want to go with you uh, on this one first. Let's talk about the similarities that you guys have in common and the differences. And I guess the whole conversation in my mind could start with, you know, what what are your spiritual leanings or understandings? Do you have much of a faith background? I know that Mubin is, is Muslim. Uh, David, what about you? What's been your spiritual journey? All right, well, so that, that's, um, uh, obviously this is something that, that uh, you have um, background on prior to the discussion. Um, the answer is, I'm a practicing Christian uh, in the Protestant tradition. There's, a, you know, a whole backstory there, which is the topic of the first book uh, that I wrote. But to try to summarize it in a cocktail party type way, as opposed <laughs> to a run rough shot over the other guest on the radio type of way. <laughs> okay. Um, mm. I, I grew up um, with parents who, you know, ethnically are Jewish, but were um, part of a sort of new age understanding of faith called the Infinite Way. Their basic outlook was that there would be truth in you know all spiritual traditions. Um, more to it than that, it wasn't fully um, a truth in everything, which I think is actually just not a sustainable uh, view. But it was one which, while I'd been raised in that milieu, it didn't really resonate uh, with me for a variety of reasons. Uh, when I was in college and um, was kind of spiritually seeking for a variety of reasons, some of which came down to a few health issues I experienced when I was young um, and a near-death experience, I actually ended up um, converting to Islam, and by by chance, uh, in the town which I grew up in, Ashland, Oregon, there was a, an Islamic charity there. Um, and so the version of faith I converted to was um, moderate, you know, Sufi in orientation, which means a lot of things to a lot of different people, but in the Western context tends to be a more spiritually-based uh, and less rules-based version of Islam. Again, I'd stress that that doesn't hold true across all societies. And so the, the charity in my hometown, which I applied for a job with between, uh, for my time between uh, college and law school, which was about a year, uh, was called the Al Haramain Islamic Foundation. This was in the pre-9/11 uh, days, and um, they actually were a, 
a major international Wahhabi charity, which, as um, multiple uh, designations of the charity make clear, uh, was across many theaters a front group for the al-Qaeda terrorist organization. Um, obviously, I didn't know that at the time. So I spent some time in that milieu, and, and um, like my friend Mubin, your question, uh, you really struggled with ideas of, of extremism uh, within the faith. You know, it was uh, an organization which, which I think would most charitably be defined as hardcore Salafi, and I think you know, very clearly uh, would fit the Salafi jihadist category. At any rate, um, you know, when I was out of that milieu, um, I tried to resolve a number of the, the spiritual challenges and questions that I had, and ultimately ended up uh, coming to uh, the Christian faith. I was uh, living in, in New York City when the 9-11 attacks happened, and given that background, it was kind of a galvanizing event for me, and I felt that what I'm doing now, uh, engaging in the study of violent non-state actors and trying to make um, my country and its interests and its allies more safe, that was something which I felt drawn to do. Wow. <laughs> okay. So what I just heard you say, David, is that you have been into Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And you're currently residing in Christianity. I mean, it's almost like a Cat Stevens uh, scenario what, here. What's where, that song again by our favorite guy, The Three Sisters? Yeah, uh, David Wilcox yes. uh, wrote that song. Three Brothers, three actually. Brothers. Yeah. Well, there's a um, sister involved. So, uh, you know, I guess you've had all these experiences with, with these three monotheistic belief systems. Would you say that that has informed you or helped to inform you in regards to this whole world of terrorism that we're now living in, in a, maybe a... A better way because you're so you're so understanding of these three monotheistic belief systems whereas if somebody has had no background in any of them how can they really have much input into into the psychology of terrorism well I'd say first of all if I had been through all of that and didn't take away any, any sort of insight from it then yeah I just wouldn't be very good at what I do in general <laughs> right, right. Um, you know I I'd say that you know one can one can understand, I think, with, with quite a level of depth without having the experience of being immersed in or part of something. But I think that having been through it is helpful. And I, I know Mubin would say the same thing about his own experiences. I think that the field we're both in is one that, in my view, um, tends to have a number of different blind spots. And the blind spots will differ depending upon which corner of the field that you're looking at. But one of the things in, in sort of the social scientific approach to terrorism that uh, predominates, at least within academic circles, uh, you get uh, a real downplaying of you know, religion, faith, and the idea that faith matters in important ways. So I think having um, you know, some experience which intersects with this is helpful in separating out things that one might... I think it helps to separate out the inferring based on kind of one's own societal context. In social sciences writ large, for since the 1960s at least, I think there was um, a tremendous bias uh, to see religion as being something of the past, something that um, it was important for thousands of years to various societies but sure. that would give way and we can see very clearly that religion writ large has not, though um, in particularly European societies, we can see that the traditional um, you know, Christian practice is, has very much declined compared to where it was even decades ago. Um, but faith matters is the bottom line, and I think that um, 
someone who has been a part of any of these milieus would understand that. Okay, again, on the uh, line here with Mubin Sheikh, who is an ex-Muslim extremist turned undercover intelligence operative, and I'm going to ask him a question now. You've been hearing David Gartenstein-Ross. He's a counterterrorism scholar and analyst and author of Bin Laden's Legacy, Why We're Still Losing the War on Terror, and so much more that we'll get into. Here's a website for David. It's D-A-V-E-E-D-G-R.com. D-A-V-E-E-D-G-R.com. Mubin, um... You know, you and I have talked many times over the last uh, couple of years, and one thing that has stayed with me, (laughs) and I want to find out if it stayed with me because it's actually accurate or because I just interpreted it this way, is that one of the reasons that we have terrorism is because of ignorance and poverty. And wherever you find ignorance and poverty, it's a great place for legalistic religions to get in and screw with people. Uh, okay. What do you think? Did I, did I just did I just uh, summarize something that you've said over the years, or am I just making stuff up? Well, no, I think, I mean, so again, back into on, on what causes terrorism, I mean, yeah. this has been an ongoing debate, and, you know, David and I agree very much on, on the importance and the role of faith, especially in, you know, what we call jihadist groups. But, I mean, it's not about poverty, because uh, many studies show, obviously, I mean, poverty, you can't really identify any one uh, factor, and poverty doesn't really feature predominantly in this context. If you break it down and, and say, well, if you see poverty as a lack of opportunity, well, then now we're, we're talking more again about, you know, uh, socialization, maybe marginalization, maybe, you know, deprivation, right? Like uh, environmental context in which people are living a hard life, right? And it propels them into finding answers to make sense of what's going on or maybe uh, justify, you know, taking up action against what they see as perceived oppression. So, I mean, you can, we can say ignorance. I mean, maybe it's relative from our perspective. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, if we're going to say what are the causes of terrorism, I, again, my simplistic answer is tends to be the interplay between ideology and foreign policy grievances, right? Uh, with the caveat that, you know, a lot of times you hear, oh, it's the U.S., it's because the U.S. is in the Middle East. And, yeah, well, I always say this. Do you think that once the U.S. leaves the Middle East, suddenly the jihadists are going to start playing nice? Suddenly they're going to have a more egalitarian uh, interpretation of Islam? No. Right? So that, that's an ideological component that plays into this as much. So, okay. Um, ignorance and poverty, I would say more ideology and, and grievances. Uh, thank you for re-educating me over... How many times has he been on the show, Tim? Uh, too many well, to you, count. When you were saying that something stuck with you for a long time, I thought, was it the ankle brace that I got? Nice. Well said. Um, okay, David, you know, I guess in this conversation, you're the you're the Christian one, and in some circles in the United States of America, that means you voted for Trump. So I don't know how you voted, nor do I really care. My question is, as someone who is a Christian, with that context, how do you feel about your president and the impact that your president will have or could have on terrorism in your own land? Uh, well, he's obviously a very polarizing figure, um, and that's not a um, it's not a positive thing. Though I think that within U.S. politics, um, in fairness, you know, the presidency is right now inherently going to be a polarizing uh, position. I tend to, you know, people tend to put me in a pessimist category. I think that that's not, um, generally speaking, uh, accurate. Uh, I think I tend to uh, project things out 
fairly well in terms of how they're going to play out. In the longer term, I think that the kind of open system that the U.S. and Canada have, one which you know allows for a variety of people to adapt to the countries and to embrace their values, um, is, is a positive thing. The U.S. and Canada as well have been struggling um, with uh, what their identity is. I think this is much more evident within the U.S. Uh, than in Canada. And Canada has not elected um, someone uh, the likes of Trump. Um, I think one of the negative things post-Trump's election, and there are many, is that you know, while there is a lot of interest post-Trump uh, being elected president in you know, who is this elusive Trump voter who members of um, kind of most media institutions had never really encountered, I think that people still don't actually understand why people were unhappy enough uh, to put someone like Trump in as the Republican nominee and to ultimately put him in uh, in the White House. On terrorism issues, though, I think that the lack of uh, the, the bombacity that he has displayed um, can play into the hands of the enemy. And certainly, uh, without any question, having extensively reviewed uh, jihadi discussions at the time of Trump's election, at the time of the inauguration, uh, I think that both ISIS and Al Qaeda uh, view him as a recruiting boon for them. Now, a lot of times they'll view things as recruiting boons that, that don't end up playing out that way. Um, but I do think that Trump, in terms of his public image, the way that he'll discuss relevant issues, does in fact you know, fit the mold of what they would like to see as the way a, a Western leader will uh, carry himself forward in dealing with these issues. Okay, so as a as a normal schmo who lives in the world, and I walk my dog, and I ride horses, and I play some hockey, and I'm not really politically minded, I'm sort of a typical Canadian, you know, middle-aged male that isn't all that invested until a bomb blows up on my own backyard, seriously. How do you keep me engaged, Mubin? How do you, how do you help me grasp this multifaceted issue because the the questions you know circling around in the normal schmo's head is well why don't they just go and kill them all uh why don't they, if it's foreign policy stuff then play nicer be a nicer country or government or whatever and then ultimately it might come down to some sort of i guess case of insularitis where I don't really don't I really don't give a holy grunt about the uh, them people over there as long as they're not bringing their stuff over here let them kill each other so how do you help that person dial into what you are dialed into every stinking day Mubin? yeah I mean you know I, I obviously David and I get along very well because uh, he's like he's a true scholar you know he can differentiate between you know when when you talk about Trump you know, the emotions he elicited, the biases that he might elicit. So, you know, on terrorism, for example, I might say, hey, you know, when he, when he uh, you know, handed down uh, authority in the field to tactical commanders, that actually helped the war against ISIS. Okay, so there are some good things that have come out of it, but, I mean, let's be real, it's, it's, it's overwhelmingly negative. Um, but now in that context, and you have these people who think, you know, Islam hates us, you know, and then this kind of narrative, Let's go through those things, right? Like, why can't we kill them all? Okay, well, David Petraeus just put out a piece saying, you know, we can't drone our way out of this problem. And anyone that studies the topic, you know, I mean, past all the, you know, the the, the caveman tough talk rhetoric, the reality is is that we, we physically and literally can't kill them all. Um, you know, we're not going to decimate entire cities with weapons of mass destruction. That's just not going to happen. 
Um, so, so there's a realistic utilitarian component. That's what I try to, to tell people. I mean, I often clash with people who say, you know, uh, we have to defeat Islam and ban Islam. And I keep telling them, I'm like, look, you, you, it's impossible to quote unquote defeat Islam as it, as it would be for those who think you can defeat Judaism, let's say, or destroy Israel, quote unquote. I mean, uh, coming from the spiritual path, you know, I believe that there is a covenant that God has between especially these three, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And I would even say that if you look at world events, it revolves around people. The majority of people who are involved in those things come from those traditions, right? I mean, whether it's the Middle East dominating our foreign policy, even some aspects of domestic policy, it all plays a role in that. So, so I try to tell people that, look, we can't, we, we live in such a globalized world now, um, and this is the problem with a lot of Muslim uh, societies that, that just can't keep up with modernity. Um, they see globalism uh, as a threat, right? Just like you hear from the, the far right side. And it's the same kind of fears that, you know, we're going to be, you know, you will not replace us, right? Like right. the whole chant that they had. And it's, I think it comes down to that idea that our sacred values, especially people who claim to come from these faith traditions, you know, are not being respected or they're not valued or in the case of many in the U.S., they, they think, oh, we need to become a more Christian country and, and therefore, and then, you know, then we'll live happily ever after, right? It's just like, you know, them saying we have to establish the caliphate and we'll live out happily ever after. Right. So I take a very real politics view of the world. Uh, you know, we, we should only move uh, where things benefit us and interest us. Yeah, I know it sounds uh, like cold at times, but look, we cannot you know, save the world. We can't involve ourselves in some, you know, atrocities that are happening, you know, in Syria, for example. But who's going to push back against Russia in a meaningful way that, you know, for us to be able to dominate in any way? We're not. We're not going to do that. So take a very utilitarian approach to the world and realize that, you know, calling for, like, destroying, you know, entire segments of people is just not realistic. Okay, uh, Mubin, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and David, I, I want to come back to you on something here. Well, first of all, David, do you have anything you want to say about what Mubin just said? Um, no, I mean, I, th- I think that's basically right. I, I don't uh, disagree um, with anything there. Okay. I, I think in particular to the point about you know, sacred values or even cultural values um, when uh, they feel threatened, um, I think that, that that is something which, um, you know, not just political, not just in terms of, of terrorism or some state violence, uh, but also in terms of just the stability of political systems, that can be very destabilizing. And I think, you know, a, a lot of people from different ideological stripes don't really understand um, how, you know, they'll reach a point where their values seem so natural, whether it's the case of, your Western liberal values um, in the broad sense, um, in the case of, in a more narrow sense, um, kind of left liberal values, uh, or in another sense, kind of conservative Islamic values, um, it, Christian values. Uh, like that, that it seems natural that one um, should be able to impose them. And I think understanding the ripple effects, the second-order consequences that are caused, is extraordinarily important to understanding the dynamics of how uh, the system works in this globalized world in which we live. Okay, David, if we didn't have to deal or contend with Russia's reaction or China's reaction, do you think 
America would stand up and giddy up and do more and go up and blow up and I don't know, you know, sort of flex their muscle more because we didn't we wouldn't have to put up with Russia and China's reaction when it comes to dealing with these uh, quote unquote terrorist nations, which is a misnomer anyway, I, I believe, is it not? Even just in general, if we didn't have to deal with Russia or China, yeah. Let's say let's say let's say let's say Russia and China were really tight and close friends and allies and just buddies and pals and you know it's like think about Prime Minister Trudeau how how friendly and pretty he is and how nice his hair is and how many right politically correct things he has done in his career. I'm looking at my tree hugging friend across the desk from me here. I love his hair too. And and let's say that we had that kind of America had that kind of relationship with with Russia and China, would that change the way America handled terrorism? Um, well, I think the answer is yes. It certainly would change the way America handled terrorism. Um, but for a lot of the the kind of top of the envelope things one might point to, I don't think it would significantly change our approach. Um, so the, the, the biggest issue, of course, has been Syria, um, which um, has both been a humanitarian tragedy and is the single country which is most driving terrorism events in terms of the massive conflict that is there. But I think that if we weren't constrained by Russia, um, I don't think the U.S. would take a significantly more aggressive approach to Syria. Really? Um, the, the, absolutely. Because if you, if you look at the ground, um, you know, if you look at, at actual events on the ground today, you know, one could argue that this wasn't the case a few years ago. But today, um, you have a zero-sum game where um, cutting Assad down to, to size is going to help al-Qaeda without any question. Um, if the, the opposition today, you, you have of course, um, elements of the opposition that are not jihadist in nature. Um, but but for the most part, they work with um, al-Qaeda's regional group, which is called Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. Now, um, you know, from a moral perspective, this doesn't uh, necessarily make the Syrian groups uh, morally bad. When you're in a conflict where over half a million people have been killed, you're going to look for any kind of allies that you can when you're dealing with a regime as brutal as Assad on the one hand, and then you know ISIS on the other hand. Uh, Al-Qaeda has played skillfully off of Assad, off of ISIS, off of Iran, um, to position itself um, as looking like more of a mainstream organization without actually moderating. And so, like, if Assad's regime were to be pushed back significantly or, or even collapse, that wouldn't solve the problem. In fact, we can see this very clearly from Libya. I argued strongly at the time, in 2011, against the U.S.'s intervention in Libya. Hmm. And I, I do think that Gaddafi was going to slaughter people at Benghazi. I don't have any question about that. But I, I also believe that more people have died as a result of the Libya conflict than lives that were saved. And it's very clear that in the wake of the fall of this brutal dictator, Muammar Gaddafi, it has left behind you know, this jihadist playground where ISIS took over an entire city, uh, took over Sirte, uh, where Derna is controlled by a group that claims ties with al-Qaeda, where jihadists operate in the south. The Libya intervention directly led to al-Qaeda, the Islamic Maghreb's takeover of northern Mali for a variety of reasons. And it also fundamentally threatens both of its neighbors, um, both of its neighbors who've experienced revolution, revolutions, hmm. uh, Tunisia as well as Egypt. 
So the law of second-order consequences looms large. And when you create, when a vacuum is created by a regime collapsing, you don't just have people live happily ever after. Instead, there's a whole country to be put back together, and you have a much, much more robust jihadist presence in Syria today, by far, many orders of magnitude over, than you did in Libya back in 2011. Wow, wow. Uh, David Gartenstein-Ross, counterterrorism scholar and analyst, uh, author of Bin Laden's Legacy, Why We're Still Losing the War on Terror, and his website is davidgr.com. That's D-A-V-E-E-D-G-R.com. Also on the line with David is Mubin Sheikh. He is our uh, regular uh, guest on our show uh, with our terrorism update. Uh, he is an ex-Muslim extremist turned undercover intelligent operative, author of Undercover Jihadi, Mobin, you've said this to me a few times, and, I, and then I want to get David's take on this. You really believe, like, let's get all let's get all religious here for a second. You really believe that the more terrorism we have in our world, that is going to be a precursor to ushering in the return of Jesus. Did I put words in your mouth again in a wrong way? He's the apostle. I forgot. I forgot to say that part. Sorry. Yeah, you're a heathen. You know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all my friends are infidels. Take it slow, right? That's the song. Um, so yep. I, uh, I look. I, I subscribe to the traditional Sunni Muslim uh, apocalyptic or eschatological tradition of, you know, the return of Jesus Christ. Peace be upon him. We believe in the second coming. Obviously, we differ what happened at the cross and thereafter, but we do believe that he will return again in some capacity. Uh, that we are to yield uh, worldly authority to him. There's also in the apocalyptic literature, and David knows all about this stuff, of course, is the Imam, uh, Al-Mahdi, we call him, uh, the one who guides. So there's this Mahdi figure who emerges first. Uh, then there is the Antichrist, who is supposed to emerge. He is a, a figure. And uh, shortly thereafter is the return of Jesus Christ, primarily to kill the Antichrist, and then usher in his uh, you know, kingdom on earth, if you will. Uh, so one of the things that I've been looking at in the ancient sect are the ancient sect called the Khawarij. I keep mentioning this. The Khawarij were an ancient sect. They rebelled against Muslim rulers. They, you know, misused the Quran. They killed people. Um, they, you would hijack cities. They would encourage Muslim kids to, you know, leave them in secret and join them in their lands, right? So it's exactly like ISIS. And there's one report which says that out of the Khawarij, from the last remnants of them, the Antichrist will emerge. And um, and so I keep open the option, right? Like, in my mind, of course, I segment everything. I mean, even if I believe that we are indeed seeing signs that, you know, take us to the return of Jesus Christ, I'm not, I'm not a prepper, okay? I'm not going to sell everything and go to a bunker and this and that. Um, but I do. I do entertain the possibility that we are, we could possibly be on that kind of trajectory. And uh, just from what I have been trying to use in my counter-messaging against ISIS is that ISIS is uh, such a deviant group that, you know, the, the Antichrist is associated with it. And when you look at, you know, the, it's attacks against Christians, it's attacks against Muslims, the idea to antagonize groups, you know, put them one against the other, you know, should, should make us a little more wise to that. So, yeah, yeah, I do believe okay. that there are signs that lead us to that. Now, David, as a Christian... Um, do you see any correlation with the escalation of ISIS and the return of Jesus? Um, with the escalation of ISIS in particular, no. I mean, I think that that, that um, 
you know, like Lubin, I leave open the possibility that we are living in the last days. But I would also, um, you know, caution two things. Uh, one, from a Christian perspective, uh, is First Thessalonians five two, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, it, it comes at a time that's un- unexpected. And throughout history, um, those who've studied um, you know various Christian sects know that in almost every, in basically every era, you've had a major movement who believed that that era was the last days and interpreted um, you know, current events to fit with the signs of the last days. And, um, you know, at some point, you know, one of these groups will get it right. But thus far, that hasn't been the case. Um, so I'm not, I, I'm not convinced in, in that regard. So again, right. I, I think that leaving open the possibility is, um, is correct. Okay, but as, as a Christian, David, what do you want the Jesus people to know? What do you want them to stop thinking, to stop saying, and what do you really want? If you could get all the Jesus people in front of you and give them one big slap upside the head, what would you say to them? Getting all Christians uh, together and giving them a slap upside the head? Yes. I think, um, <laughs> you know, generally speaking, I'm not, I'm not big on giving any one religious group a collective slap upside the head is, is but what these I are say. these are your people man and and you've you know you're whether it's the redneck right religious rhetoric wow say that one three times or you've got the right um, religious power brokers in washington or you've got you know the the right hollywood people who are also christians or whatever i mean what is there something that that as christians you feel just personally you feel that that tribe is really not getting when it comes to this terrorist stuff, when it comes to, you know, honoring God with the way they respond to uh, this world situation that we're in right now? Well, I, I think there are plenty of things that the tribe isn't getting, but I think that that's, it, it, that seems to be the human condition. Right, 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 right. right. As, as humans, people tend to be ignorant of far more than they know. And they don't understand where their knowledge stops and their ignorance begins. And I think people also tend to be fundamentally reactive yeah. in their thinking, um, which is one reason why I, I would hesitate to give anyone a collective slap on the head, <laughs> because I think what that ends up doing is privileging one outlook, which in our current discursive environment is flawed as well. And look, as a Christian, it's of deep concern to me that Christianity is basically being stamped out of the region in which it was born. And you can see this very clearly demographically, um, and by demographically I just mean the the sheer numbers, with um, Christianity having withered in Iraq very quickly after the fall of Saddam Hussein. You can see uh, attacks on Coptic Christians in Egypt and Coptic Christians being uh, driven out there. And I think that the way that... You're pointing to the right, and you mentioned Terry Jones elliptically, and I think that Terry Jones, you know, it, it's obviously a, a gross reaction, um, but at the same time, it is a reaction to um, I, to the fact that um, I think for most Christians, they're kind of dumbfounded um, that the U.S. government will largely stand idly by while this was occurring. Um, they see Christians in the Middle East as being a natural constituency, and that's what they, they um, are in many ways, um, kind of in, often in, in ways of gross overreaction, are trying to articulate. Um, you know, I would point my finger. I, I would say no one is innocent, and I would point my finger in multiple directions right. um, on this issue. Uh, I, I think that um, uh, given 
given the multitude of problems that um, you can see Christians face globally, um, you know, I, I would be hesitant to just you know point at Perry Jones over in the corner um, and <laughs> yeah. say you're the problem, yeah. Uh, yeah. because he has a problem. But l- let's be real: before the internet, no one would know who Terry Jones was. Exactly. Right. Like he would have been on page you know B twenty two of his local newspaper uh, <laughs> with the headline some, you know, "Some idiot you've never heard of burns a Quran." <laughs> Whereas you know, in the age of YouTube and in the age of, of um, the way messages spread. Suddenly, he's like this international sensation where four-star generals are wringing their hands over whether Terry Jones is going to burn the Quran. Um, like, overall, you know, Terry Jones would be uh, le- much less of an issue if we had a different means of communication. But I think also the Terry Joneses of the world would have less power if people who are actually able to shape events at an elite level were doing a, a better job of setting policies. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Really well said. All right, Tim, I want to bring my uh, my co-host in here. Tim, you've been chomping at the bit. What's stirring in your head? Yeah, well, two things. One goes back a little bit to what we were talking about, the idea of globalism and, like, why would I care about what's happening over there? And I think globalism is going to change that. And I had a personal experience with that because, as you know, my daughter is in England right now. And um, even though she's not near London, she her school group does travel to London. And the day before they had a planned trip to London, there was that bombing on the tube. Right. So all of a sudden I had that little, you know, liquefied bowel moment and it became very real to me. It was no longer someone else's kids, someone else's country. So I think globalism actually might change that for a lot of people because we will be affected because we are everywhere. Sure. But with regards to this whole... um, Rapture, be it uh, you know the the Muslim look at the the end times, or the Christian or the Jewish look at the end times. It, it's this double edged sword that you know, in some ways, we want it to happen because we want peace to come back as believers in that. But there's this other end of it, like you know, the extremists will say, you know, we'll try to perpetuate and to bring it early. Why wouldn't we want Jesus to come back sooner? You know, and and then you know they curse us for trying to prevent that and saying no, we don't want terrorism, we don't want all this stuff to happen because it's not nice. You know, let's protect each other. Um, and then they scold us for saying, oh, you're preventing Jesus from coming. You know, it's, it's that's this, just fringe whack job. No, Terry no, but Jones I th- in the no, corner no, no, kind no, of I stuff. Think, do you not think? I think there are people out there when you know they sit down and think about it and even listen to what Mubin and, and uh, David have said is is if this is end time stuff and you can start to quote unquote see end time stuff. Obviously, taking into consideration that Thessalonians verse that was mentioned before, um, people are may start going. Well, well, then let's just let it happen. Let's get Jesus back here sooner. Yeah, now, who says with, that? With global, uh, my my wife is deep into the global climate change, and there are a number of people in the U.S. right wing politicians and so on and so forth that purposely are trying to avoid it and do nothing because they think that it will encourage the second coming of Christ. Okay. Is there a question in that diatribe? No, I think it's, it's just sort of a comment on um, double-edged sword thing. Like, do we do we step back and let it happen because it will bring Jesus? Or do we say, wait, this is wrong. People are hurting each okay, other. Let's so get involved. L- sorry, guys. Let me just jump in here and, and try to save you from Tim. Uh, <laughs> so here's the thing. If we're going to go at this from a scriptural point of view, it's yeah. very clear that these are the signs. The end is going to, you know, yeah, Jesus is going to sure. be. Here are the signs. Oh, right? No, no, here are the signs. Here millennium. are the signs. Here are the signs. Okay. The fig tree is going to give fruit and it's going to grow and then it's going to die and it's going to be, and it's, it's just all normal stuff. We don't know when it's going to happen. So there is no, you can't, there's nothing to grab onto here. 
And anybody says there is something to grab onto or we can speed it up is both theologically ignorant and probably yeah. is missing a couple of teeth. But that Mo- is what is happening. Okay. Yeah, okay. Mubin? Yeah, just I wanted to... Yeah, well, you cannot hasten or delay the will of God and the order of God. Thank you. It will occur at its predetermined time. We can't slow it down. And the point, actually, and I know we... I, let me just digress on... You know, yes, it's true in ancient times. Many times people thought, oh, this is the end, this is the end. You know, when the Crusades was happening in Jerusalem, yep. 1100... The Black yeah, Plague. I would say, yeah, I would say... While we're in a later part of that time period, um, you know, a number of things have happened. The reestablishment of, of Israel, of Bani Israel in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Uh, but there's a saying, the Prophet, peace be upon him, ours said, even if doomsday comes upon you and you're planting a tree, finish planting the tree. Okay, so even if we know that there are signs and it's possible that it will happen, just keep doing the rest of your, you know, your job. The Jews have a saying, right? If the, if the Messiah is declared to be here, verify it, right? Don't just, like you said, it's not something for you to grab onto that suddenly you're going to get switched onto it. Either you're on the path or you're not on the path. Right. Simple. Jesus oh. saves, but Gretzky scores on the rebound, right? You're a putz. David, I, I really would like the last intelligent word to come from you. Being the guy that you are, doing what you do and having done what you've done for so long and you can go to his website davidgr.com d-a-v-e-e-d-g-r.com and read all of his accolades and accomplishments being the guy in the know the way that you're in the know are you freaked out mm, I, I very rarely freak out <laughs> uh, i'm kind of getting that impression yeah but you you know yeah, what i mean that... not 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 freaking out but i mean are do you feel for example one of my interns here um a millennial and, you know, I have a hard time with millennials. Oh, yeah. But she just said, why do you think terrorism has become such a prevalent way of expression to make a point? And it, it, in other words, is it really on a rise or is it just that we're hearing about it more? And are you knowing what you know, David, in the world that we live in? Is this indeed escalating? Are we actually in an escalation of terrorism? So I think the the right answer is yes. That There's also a no answer. Um the no answer is, if you look at the figures from the 1970s, uh, there were far more terrorist attacks uh, in North America and in Europe, um, and, and it actually wasn't very close. Um, I think that answer is, is generally speaking, wrong, though. Um, although, for, I, I should caveat that it's very clear that for Canada right now, Terrorism is not as bad as it used to be, right? If you look at the Quebec um, nationalist movement, yeah. um, if you look at um, the um, uh, if you look at the Armenian groups that were targeting Turkish interests, mm-hmm. um, if you look at um, Sikh terrorism, like terrorism in Canada actually was much worse from the 1970s and 80s um, versus where it is now. Interesting. That being said, globally. Uh, I think terrorism is worse. Um, it can be defined in a couple of ways, both terrorism uh, as actual terrorism and also just sub-state violence. But I think you have a few trends that make this the case. Number one, nation-states are weaker than they were in the 20th century, which um, decentralizes military power and means that sub-state actors are playing a much bigger role in driving violence. The second thing is um, uh, technology, that Terrorist attacks are deadlier uh, than they used to be. 
you, while there was more frequent terrorism in the 1970s, you didn't have attacks in Western countries like the Paris attacks with 130 people killed, like the Orlando attack with 49 people killed, um, and you know multiple other major attacks, the 9-11 attacks, of course, the deadliest terrorist attack in the history of the world. Um, you didn't have those. And the, the ways that terrorist groups can innovate as new technologies come online mm. just keep increasing. Uh, something I've written about a lot is, is what I call the virtual planner model of terrorism, where terrorist groups like ISIS use the accessibility they have supporters through things like social media and combine that with uh, encrypted communications to turn people who once, you know, just a decade ago would have been what we call lone wolf terrorists, these lone operatives, into people who are inherently linked to the organization, able to uh, carry out their individual attacks in a way that, that helps to advance its strategy, um, and um, at the same time are more technically competent because they have people who can guide them literally up until the moment they go boom. Like one very interesting thing that comes to the virtual planner model is there was a suicide bombing last year in Amzok, Germany. It was out. It was in a restaurant outside of a concert, and the operative was talking to his handler, a virtual planner, right up until he blew himself up. He was freaking out because of security. He didn't want to do it, and the operative talked him through his crisis and said, "Look, what's going on with you, man? Forget about the concert. Forget about the security." walk into the restaurant and blow yourself up. He said, even if I could kill just two people, I would do it. Uh, he said, trust in God and go to the restaurant. And that's what the operative did. Wow. It's very clear from this chat transcript that had the virtual planner not been there, that the guy would have gotten cold feet. Wow. He wouldn't have done it. Uh, other things that are coming down the pipeline, consumer drones. Drones are much more prevalent than they were before. ISIS has used consumer drones in an offensive way in Mosul um, to drop um, basically grenades and other kinds of, of bombs on Iraqi forces. I think the odds are you know, well over 70% that in the next five years we will see a consumer drone used in a terrorist plot yeah. in a Western country. Man. And then there are other, every time there's a, a neat new app that comes along or some neat new techno toy, there's somebody out there thinking, how can I use this to kill somebody? And technolo technology is advancing as it never has. So that's another reason it's worse. And then the final reason is I think that people's trust in state governments, um, you know, nation-state governments, is is at an all is at a low. Maybe not an all-time low, but it definitely is low. And given the way power dynamics has shifted, I think that decisively for the moment um, tips the scale toward there being more terrorism, because if you see in other places that terrorism seems to kind of work, and you think that your values uh, are not being represented in whatever way by the political system or the global system, there's just, there's incentive right now for people to um, take uh, this violence yeah. into their own hands. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, will you be speaking in Toronto anytime soon, David? Uh, I don't have anything planned at the moment, um, but it is one of my favorite cities, so I'm sure I'll uh, get there before too long. And I would really love to hang out with you when you come up here and uh, and just talk about Mubin behind his back. Ah, I think that'd ah. be... <laughs>
It'd be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, I, 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 I'm 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 there talking about Mubin behind his back. We'll make it happen. <laughs> okay, good. Mubin, thank you for being our go-to guy every month, man. You really have... You bring this lightness to it, but you also are actually a pretty smart dude. Despite what your wife says, you're really intelligent. <laughs> which, which wife? Which one? Yeah, well, nice. 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 <laughs> well done. Oh, well I done. said that while my wife wasn't here. So yes, you did. Very brave of you. Um, gentlemen, to both of you, thank you for enduring the nonsense that we have on this show. And, you know, I know it's hard for you, both you guys, to sort of, you know, bring things to a palatable takeaway for the rest of the world. The world you guys swim in is just something that we don't get. Uh, so, in other words, thanks for dumbing it down, both of you guys. I really appreciate it very, very much. Mubin Sheikh, ex-Muslim extremist, turned under... Turned undercover intelligence operative, author of Undercover Jihadi, and a regular on the Drew Marshall Show. And David Gartenstein Ross, a counterterrorism scholar and analyst. Bin Laden's legacy, Why We're Still Losing the War on Terror, is the book he wrote. And uh, his website is davidgr.com. To both of you, gentlemen, thank you very, very much for joining us on the show today. Godspeed and God bless. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. Pleasure.